Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Right now on Fast, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen right here on CNBC saying that as early as June 1st, the U.S. will run out of money to pay its bills. This is the president gets set for a debt limit showdown with congressional leaders tomorrow. How worried should the market be as the debt clock keeps ticking? Plus, checking Chuck. Shares of Charles Schwab down nearly 40% in the last two months as a discount broker has been swept up in the wave of regional banks selling. Swire analysts and fund managers still recommending it. We'll hear from one. And later, one of our traders is ready to take a fresh look at shares of Airbnb and DoorDash. Find out why he is pinning his constructive tone on the post-earning surge of Uber. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Steve Grasso, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. We start off with markets on edge ahead of a big week for stocks. The Nasdaq and S&P managing to close just in the green, while the Dow ended the day down about 55 points. The latest senior loan officer survey showing banks are still worried about a slowing economy and deposit outflows. And there are more potential catalysts for the markets in the coming days, from tomorrow's debt ceiling showdown between President Biden and Speaker McCarthy to a slate of inflation data this week, CPI Wednesday, PPI on Thursday, and of course, the next big read on the consumer when retail earnings kick off next week. So is today just the calm before the storm? Kind of feels that way, Dan. Yeah, so you see a VIX at 17. Um, It was at 20 late last week. You see the move index that tracks the volatility in in the Treasury bond market. Yeah, and that's picking up a little bit here. But, you know, I guess the thing, and I've mentioned this a couple times here, so what you're just saying about the senior loan uh, officer survey, if if there really is concern about credit, right, I think you want to take a look at the small caps. We've mentioned this on a few occasions. So the Russell 2000, it's unchanged on the year. It's down 27.5% percent from its November 2021 highs. And, you know, it did top out two months before the S&P 500 here. And the lack of direction, I think, in the small caps might be more indicative of what's going on in the broader economy here in the U.S. than what's gone on in the major indices. Because, again, we know, I think David Rosenberg had a tweet out this morning talking about the equal weight S&P versus the market cap weight. And that ratio is at levels that it has not seen. So it's just basically highlighting how much these 10 stocks are doing, at least to the overall overall market. And that's why I bring it back to the small caps, because you could say to me, okay, Apple's market cap is equal to the entire Russell 2000. That's fine. But there are 2000 stocks in the Russell 2000, okay, that are saying something very different than what the S&P is saying. Okay. So I'm going to say something potentially stupid, but I don't care how I look. Um, if you're never asking, that's stupid. I, I would never say that. has not. It's amazing. Um, if you're out there and you're investing in the top 10 stocks, what do you care what the Russell 2000 is doing? You're in the top 10 stocks. You're okay because this is the head scratcher. It is amazing, right, how durable this market has been in the face of a bank crisis, a debt ceiling showdown, and still we're just... I don't know, motoring along, Karen. Motoring along. I guess it's been on the expectation that the Fed is done, right? I guess. I mean, and also this, you know, we've been afraid talking about a recession for, I don't know, seven months now, eight months. Yeah. It has yet to arise. So, and the data has been okay, right? And so maybe all of that is, is it possible we're at a soft landing where the Fed, the inflation's coming down, the Fed can ease off, 
and yet the economy hasn't really been hurt. Certainly the labor market still seems to be in great shape. Yeah. So that would make sense to me yeah. why this is as it is. I think we have shook off everything, as you just said. We, we, year after year, things that would have knocked this market down. And I don't know whether it's a testament to how electronic the market has gotten, how small the average lot size has gotten, but things that normally would knock the market don't anymore. And I think it's about rates. I think that's the uh, the holy grail of the market right now. So if rates continue to do what they're doing, which is basically fall in the, in the near term, I would guess that people think it's already done. But I, 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 let's say something provocative. What happens if we've already had the recession? What happens if it's, if it's over already? Because I think you're going to hear that chant that we've already been through it already. Right. I mean, there's always a delay between when the NBER declares a recession and when the recession actually happened, Guy. Um, you've been, you know, firmly in the bear camp uh, in terms of the markets and, and what's going to happen to the economy and how that will impact the markets. At what point do you say, you know, maybe things are not looking so bad? The data is OK. And maybe, yes, credit conditions are tightening. Um, and, and maybe there's one more hike on the part of the Fed, and maybe we go through this debt ceiling showdown, which always seems to get worked out at the last minute anyway, and things are fine. That's what I struggle with clearly. When can you be wrong, and when are you pushing towards, instead of trying to stay fluid, you fall into the dogma camp? And maybe I'm there and I don't even realize it, but I'll, you know, I'll say this. Earnings weren't as bad as expected. That gave the market some somewhat firm footing. But is it just a matter of time before we start to see it? Is that lag effect taking longer than I thought it would? I think so. I mean, I think there's an inevitability to some of the things that we've been talking about. We're going to talk about Tyson Foods later, so I won't um, jump the gun here. But they said some pretty negative things. And it's across a series of sectors and across a series of stocks. Now, why is the market continue to grind higher? Passive investing is alive and well, and they do not look at headlines, um, no fears are necessarily associated with passive investing. There's a money flow situation going on. But the headwinds are out there. The market is expensive. The debt ceiling is a thing. I do think they're going to push the envelope here, just given the climate that we find ourselves in. And I don't think the market's uh, taking that into consideration. Yeah, let's be clear. The S&P is up 8% of the year. It's not even above those February 2 levels that we were all pretty much focused on. So it's been grinding a whole heck of a lot at a time where we've all just said this, that the you know the, the, the earnings were clearly better than a lot of people expected. And I think if you were just to kind of look in a vacuum and say, okay, maybe we're coming out of something to kind of Steve's point in a way. But I guess, I, you know, put it all together with what we're seeing in, in tighter credit conditions. I mean, the stock market started selling off in late 2021 because the Fed said they're going to battle inflation by raising interest rates. Here here we are, okay, about a year and a half later, and we have interest rates at 5%. We have the Fed funds here. We have the 10-year back at 4%, or excuse me, the two-year at 4%, the 10-year at 3.5%. These are levels that are actually not really conducive to valuations that we've become accustomed to over the last 10 years. And I think that's really important. If you look at just where the S&P is trading at 18 and a half times, I mean, we're above the five-year average, above the 10-year average. That doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And I'll just take you back to what's going on with the financials here. By no means, are we kind of out of the woods yet for what's going on here? When you think about the costs that are going to come on the big banks for regulatory purposes of all of this extraordinary measures to kind of backstop this or kind of help contain this sort of regional banking crisis, to me, it just doesn't feel like it's over. So I, I guess what, what I'm saying is up 8% on the year. We're still down from that 4,800 level um, in the S&P 500. And I just think that we could be unchanged to down like that over the next
next few weeks. I, so. I agree with everything you said, but to getting back to rates, if rates start to come in or we get to the end of the tightening cycle, you're going to, st- you're going to start to see margin expansion. So you're talking about 18 and a half times. You probably could squeeze out 20, 21 times on the S&P, and that's going to fool everybody yet again, and people are just going to dive into those 10 names where you started the show. All right. Um, Meantime, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen just telling our own Sarah Eisen that it's essential that Congress raise the debt ceiling and that failing to do so would be an economic catastrophe. Sarah joins us now with the breaking headlines from her interview. Sarah. Hi, Melissa. Secretary Yellen went farther than ever before, a warning of the catastrophic impact of a debt default, which would happen if Congress doesn't raise the debt limit by early June. She warned it would have, quote, tremendously adverse effects on the financial markets and the economy. And as for status update, she says there is still a big gap between where the president and the Republicans are on the issue ahead of this key meeting tomorrow between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. She said that the president will talk spending cuts with regard to the budget but not going around the debt ceiling to do that with a, quote, gun to America's head. That's her way of putting it, and the president's. And for the first time, when I asked her about the dollar, she said that it risks the reserve currency status, this whole issue. Listen. If we were to compromise the credit rating of the United States and um, even worse, to default on the debt, I think that would have an adverse uh, impact on the dollar's use. Quite a statement from a Treasury secretary threatening the reserve currency status. Now, as for the regional banks, of course, we had to talk about that, too. She noted the share pressure that we've seen in the market, the earnings pressure that these banks are still facing, said she would be prepared to act again if we see another bank failure. Listen. Regulators stand ready uh, to use the same tools we have in the past if there are further pressures that arise that um, could create contagion. As for this idea of temporarily banning short selling on the banks, which is a SEC decision, she did say there's a high bar for that and had it had more negative impacts in the financial crisis. Didn't sound like she was really on board with that idea. She did say that there's a conversation happening with the FDIC, the bank regulator, on the benefits of raising deposit insurance. But again, through that statement, really more of the implicit guarantee of deposit insurance. And then, Melissa, of course, I asked her about the tightening impact of credit conditions on the economy after that report we got that showed that that's happening this afternoon. She said, look, it's part of the process of the Fed raising rates and pointed to the strength in the labor market with another good jobs report on Friday as evidence that the economy is still holding up relatively well despite that headwind. And she's still sticking with the view that it's going to be a soft landing because she doesn't see unemployment spiking or layoffs mounting. So far, it has been right. We'll see if that can continue. Sarah, thanks. Great interview. Sarah Eisen with the Treasury Secretary. All right, so tomorrow's the big meeting. The stakes are high, but the expectations are very low in terms of what will actually happen. And if anything, will get resolved. And Mitch McConnell's all but saying, I'm not going to step in here. I'm not going to help the process along. It is up to President Biden. It is up to Kevin McCarthy. And I'm staying out of it. And, And they haven't met in a very long time. So... Karen. Yeah, I think you're right about the bar being low. I think the most surprising outcome would be some sort of deal. Right. That would be shocking, I think. I don't think it's going to happen, but I guess we'll get a sense of how far apart they are and um, maybe some sense of if there's a willingness to compromise. I don't know. My expectations are low. I think everyone should just jot down September 30th on their calendar because I think that's the most likely outcome. They're just going to kick it 
another couple of months and we'll we'll redo it at that point. So I think they will avert, uh, uh, you know, avert the crisis, but I think we're still going to be dealing with this in a, in a handful of months from now. So I'm not expecting anything tomorrow, least of which the trillion dollar coin being housed at the Federal Reserve or the enactment of the uh, 14th Amendment. So either of those things are not not happening, which we've heard about in the last couple of days. Yes, yep. For more on the debt ceiling in the market, let's bring in Julian Emanuel, Evercore ISI Senior Managing Director. Julian, great to have you with us. Um, for all what's going on, the markets, you walked into our green room today and you said the invincible market. Here we are. It is. It seems that way. It, it, it is. Look, so at the S&P 500 level, you have been literally motionless for seven months now. Now, of course, the concern is that the year-to-date returns are, call it, almost two-thirds driven by those top five names, all of which have AI in their remit somehow or another. Uh, and that is a concern, particularly when you see the Russell 2000 really approaching its lows of last year. So it seems like it's okay. And frankly, from our point of view, we don't understand why the VIX is as low as it is, given the fact that the T-bill markets a week ago, one-month T-bill yields were 100 basis points lower than they are now, because that one month is now over the X date. Same concern in the credit default swap markets. We think there's a little bit of a disconnect that's likely to get resolved with a little bit more volatility in the coming weeks. All right. So, Julian, you mentioned AI. Um, it does seem to be something that investors are pretty excited about this year. And it's not just one of these sort of mini bubbles that we have seen. You know, when we talk about what we saw in SPACs, if you talk about what we saw in crypto and, and all these other tech things, we're talking about maybe it's one or two trillion dollars. You know what I mean? Like in totality. But when you think about what's moved the entire stock market, mega cap stock, it seems like all of the risk has been transferred into a handful of names. Is that the sort of thing as a strategist with volatility readings where they are right now, doesn't that make you nervous that we could have some sort of snowballing effect if there was something to cause, I don't know, some concern about this bubble where a lot of investors have placed all of their hopes? It it definitely does, Dan. Look, to us, the AI revolution is likely quite real quite significant. But as we all know, whether it's the Internet or what have you, these things unfold in waves and you get a little bit too much enthusiasm and the stocks sell off. If the rest of the market was participating, that would be another thing. Uh, But that's not the case. And I have to tell you, we've had some very odd conversations the last several days with people who actually think there is an amount of money. It's probably not large that actually look at T-bills and wonder whether they're safe, look at bank deposits over 250K and wonder whether they're safe and are putting money into the top five large cap tech names. They're really they're about safe. The perception in it, the markets. Right it's now. extraordinary. It's um, when you say too much concentration in the top five names, that implies that there will be a run for the exits. That, that, that is sort of the danger of that. I mean, what you know, if you're investing in the top five names, which is probably most of America through passive investing, right? What's going to make me sell? Uh, the, so, so, so then where's the instability in the market? So like, let's say the economy does hit the skids. Where's the instability in the market? So the instability is, again, as you said, the public is continues to be disproportionately exposed to those types of names. But the fact is, and we've been talking about this for months now, and I think it's part of the frustration, we almost want the recession to come to get the clearing event, and we've been talking about it for a year. But the fact is, until the labor market does what the Fed would like it to do in terms of its projections, there isn't going to be any real urgency to sell stocks. 
So for you, what do you tell clients? This, this because slot. that's a tough that's a tough sell to just sort of wait. It's going to come. It's going to come. The labor markets are going to crack. You just wait. You just wait. You just wait. And in the meantime, the markets are sort of motoring along and your clients are probably like, Julian, you told me to hang on here. What's going on? So so our view is that you want to stay in the more defensive sectors. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, with all this AI talk, healthcare and consumer staples have outperformed since April 1st. We think they're going to continue outperforming. Uh, it's a good place. Biotech also among healthcare. There's M&A activity going on. And that's a sector that does well when the Fed pauses. And we think they are pausing here. Julian, thank you. Great to see you. Julian Emanuel, yeah. Evercore. What do you think, Karen? Well, it's a little counter. It's sort of a circular thing. If, if it cracks because the labor, you know, finally moves, does that really give the Fed the green light to set, to pause or to, you know, Right. Right. And so that has been bearish last year. Then the other side is, well, maybe we, you know, buy the rumor of the Fed pausing, sell the news. Mm -hmm. I don't know which. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel as if we've all been sitting around this table talking about the same, the only six stocks that matter forever now. And I think it's always people are just starting to pay attention that it's concentrated in just a handful of names, maybe 10 names instead of six names before. But when you tell your clients cash, everyone starts to scratch their head and they get bored with that. People want a certain amount of risk. And that's what keeps people, guys said it before, passive investing, that's what's keeping this market right here. Yeah. And by the way, 7%, 8% year-to-date performance in the S&P 500 guy, if we stopped today and we said this was the year, yeah. this was to 2020, that, that's not bad considering all that we've digested in the first four months of the year. In this environment, it's extraordinary, I would submit. And listen, and Steve said it's about interest rates. I agree to a point, but I, I actually think the Fed's a bit of a sideshow now. And I think, quite frankly, it doesn't matter where interest rates go within reason because regulation is coming, credit conditions are tightening. Whether or not rates go up or down, I think credit conditions are tightening. And again, what I've been wrong about, other than the direction of the market, is the how long this lag effect is taking. But it's going to have an impact. And if you read, again, some of these earnings releases over the last couple of weeks, outside of the big names we talk about all the time, companies are absolutely feeling it. So what was that saying, Guy, that it was, uh, I think, your friend Keynes from college, the market can stay <laughs> irrational longer than you can stay solvent or so. We seem to be in that phase. And I just think it's really important, again, going back to where the S&P is, it's not making a lot of progress at a time where I think a lot of the headwinds are starting to mount. So to me, the narrower and narrower this rally gets, the more danger you have to a sharp sell-off. Coming up, we're all over some after-hours action in PayPal, Lucid, and Palantir. The details from the quarters coming up, plus a big revenue warning out of Catalint, what it could mean for supply of one key weight loss drug, the forecast cut that sent shares tumbling. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? 
At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on PayPal shares lower despite a top and a bottom line beat and the company boosting its profit guidance for 2023. The conference call is underway. Christina Partsonevelis also cut off with PayPal's CEO, Christina. Yeah, I just got off the phone with him maybe about 20 minutes ago, CEO Dan Schulman, who attributed the earnings beat and increase in full-year EPS to two main factors. Firstly, their branded business is growing not only across the United States, but across the UK, Australia, and Europe. Secondly, he said e-commerce is coming in stronger than they expected, saying, quote, we thought it could be low, as in flat, and now it could grow low single digits, maybe even mid-single digits. He also said the drop in inflation here in the United States is helping consumers spend more on goods, specifically within fashion as well as electronics. And yet, what we saw is the stock is selling off down, what, over 5%. There could be uh, two reasons that stand out to me. First, Q2 EPS guidance. The range came in at $1.15 to $1.17. So that means that the midpoint is one cent less than the estimated $1.17. That's a small thing. But the other big flag could be that the company expects less operating margin growth for the second half of the year. That comes after months of cost cutting. So it can only go so far. Shulman just saying, though, on the analyst call that's under array, that uh, the board has formed a subcommittee and we're working with a leading search firm. They plan to announce his replacement by year end because he is retiring at the end of this year. But still, Stop they chatting. haven't announced it. <laughs> Christina, thank you. Thanks. Christina Partsonevelis. What did you make of this quarter? Just buy it. I mean, like, if you're looking for things to buy, after some of these quarters that we've seen where yeah. stocks have gone up, yes, you know, this thing is expected to have, what, high single digits, uh, EPS growth, made single digit, or like 15% um, sort of sales growth here. It's 48% gross margin. The stock's down. It's down 75% from its all-time highs. It's trading at a well below a market multiple. Good balance. I mean, like, they're going to have a new CEO that'll be exciting or whatever. I mean, you buy this thing near 70, you'll probably be but selling you know it. How, you know how Guy often says if stocks trade up on bad news, Mm -hmm. that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Where we have, if you read this report, you would have thought the stock would be up after hours. Oh, really? I thought the stock would have been down. No, I, it, it, well, guidance. Well, that's guidance the, lower that's, than the beat. Yeah. Guidance was lower. But if you look back on a chart on this stock and go back to when they were thinking about buying Pinterest, the stock was a $270 stock or thereabouts. And the thought was they were worried about being out of growth. Look at Pinterest, where that was. So for me, I don't, I don't think you could buy it just yet. It is stabilizing, but I still don't think it's a buy. All right. Uh, let's get to Lucid here. Also out with the results. Shares dropping as the EV maker reported a loss of 43 cents a share and a wide revenue miss. The company maintaining delivery estimates at the lower end of guidance issued earlier this year. The conference call just getting underway. Actually, we'll get underway just minutes from now. Phil LeBeau's got more on this. Phil. Listen, not a lot to like in the first quarter for Lucid. As you mentioned, they missed on the top and the bottom line. Losing 43 cents a share. The street was expecting a loss of 41 cents a share. As you mentioned, revenue well short of expectations. And it raises raises the question, really, what happened in the first quarter? I had a conversation with Peter Rawlinson, CEO of Lucid, and he said, look, there were a couple of main factors that caused them to have lower production and lower deliveries in the first quarter relative to the fourth quarter, a slow January. And he said, you know, January is typically slow in the auto business. I said, yes, but I've not often heard that as the main reason for a miss in terms of quarterly uh, production and and so forth. And then he said there was the EV tax credit ending. Remember, it used to be prior to the IRA tax rules going into effect 
that you would get a $7,500 federal tax credit. Now the Lucid models are too expensive for that to apply. He said those two combined to have uh, an impact in terms of production and deliveries in the first quarter. And now it brings up the question of guidance. They are planning to build at least 10,000 vehicles for 2023. Remember, the guidance at the end of the fourth quarter was for production of between 10,000 and 14,000 vehicles this year. They're no longer giving that higher end of saying they could hit 14,000. So that's a slight tweak in terms of their guidance. And they now say their liquidity is enough to last into the second quarter of 2024. Previously, they said they had enough to get into the first quarter of 2024. Now they've pushed it into the second quarter of 2024. By the way, they're sitting on $4.1 billion in liquidity. I asked the CFO if they have a, uh, the, the option in terms of are they looking at the prospect of raising more capital. They said, oh, there will probably be more capital that will be needed, re needed in the future. No plans to announce as of right now. But the bottom line is this, Melissa, there is nothing really to, to hang your hat on in this first quarter with production and deliveries coming in lower than in the fourth quarter. Wow. Phil, keep us posted. Phil LeBeau, conference call again, gets underway in just a few minutes for Lucid. Um, that's a terrible excuse. Seasonality for the car industry? I never heard that before. Well, especially while you're trying to ramp up and it's not about... Right. Yeah, it's a... Yeah, that is, there should be like an excitement factor. People are waiting for this car to come right. out. It's slow. January slow. <laughs> uh, and production and deliveries huh. where Phil left left off for, for a company that's in the phase that Lucid is in right now. You can't be missing on both those fronts. We saw that with Tesla years and years ago. Now Tesla has become an, an extreme case to the to the side of success, but the stock is still tremendously volatile. So. Tesla, you're going to be talking about energy production mm -hmm. along with deliveries, and that's a two-pronged thing that no one else has. Yeah, and then in terms of the capital raise, I mean, maybe they're hoping that interest rates will fall and then they can issue some debt then. I mean, Guy, I, I don't know. Its options seem to be not that long, at least now for the next year. they got to think of something. Second quarter 24 will be here faster than people realize, number one. So that cash burn is going to happen. They have to do it. I mean, they basically said it. We're going to have to do a raise at some point. Probably trades close to four times revenue, which is too expensive, probably getting more expensive given this miss. There's just nothing to like here. I mean, this everybody was gaga over the stock a couple of years ago. We actually talked about it being ridiculous in terms of valuation, and the valuation is still at seven and change, still a little excessive. So I still, I still think there's room to the downside in the stock, unfortunately. Just if you want to be long the stock, you must believe that the public investment fund, which owns 60 percent of the company, mm. will just step up and pay whatever they need because they will run out of money without that. Yeah. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Talk about slimming down. Shares of one weight loss drug manufacturer tumbling, even as demand skyrockets. What the move could mean for production. Plus, the banking blues continue. And one name can't seem to get out of its own way. The stock to watch ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mow and Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a, like a good neighbor. Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Catalent, a major buzzkill in today's session. Shares dropping more than 25% after the company warned of a $400 million cut to its annual revenue forecast. Catalent is a main contract manufacturer for Novo Nordisk's weight loss drug, Wigovi. It is the second time in the last month the stock has fallen by more than 25% in a single day. Shares are down nearly 50% over the past two months. The move not impacting Novo Nordisk at all. Shares were up actually 3% in today's session. Karen, you're digging into this. I was because you highlighted it. Wow, something interesting is going on here. And so four days ago, Novo Nordisk announced another contract manufacturer. And the perception was to increase for all that demand that they're getting. And that probably is true. However, they also said risk mitigation. And in hindsight, it may appear that, wow, maybe Catalan wasn't doing a great job. Novo Nordisk said we're going to diversify. That is a relevant piece of information. And Danaher, who was in, in talks with Catalan, maybe that's why it fell apart. I don't know, but uh, it's sort of another, it's an in, in hindsight, it looks a lot different why Novo Nordisk did that. Yeah, there were all these individual events happening, and then now right. that we know what the end result is, you're sort of like, oh, were they all, connected, were they all in, connected in some way? Guy? Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, Karen did the work on this, so I'm not going to get into Catalan specifically, but it shows, I mean, it speaks to the strength of Novo Nordisk, because again, we play the game. If you had told me yesterday what would happen, and then played in the Novo Nordisk game, I'd be the stock is down 10%, and instead it's up on the day. So it's fascinating, the underlying strength in some of these big cap pharma names that we talk about. I mean, again, look at Eli Lilly, Merck, probably another all-time high today with Whisper. So big cap pharma is alive and well, but below the surface, there's some things to be concerned about. All right, coming up, real trouble or just some temporary pain? What our next guest says investors are getting all wrong about Charles Schwab as shares remain under pressure. More on that next, plus a technical look at some gig stocks, but one of our traders sees in the charts. The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks muted today ahead of key inflation data. The Dow falling 50 points, its fifth negative session in six, and the S&P and Nasdaq eking out small gains. Shares of Tyson Foods dropping 16% after the company posted an unexpected loss, cut its revenue outlook for the year. It was Tyson's worst day since 2008. And shares of Palantir surging after hours, the company posting a beat on the top and the bottom lines, reporting its second straight quarter positive net income. Guy, you're commenting on Tyson. You, you feel strongly about this one. Listen, it's, we've reached the point now where companies can no longer successfully pass their cost on to the consumer. At least that's what I took from the Tyson call. And they're talking about how people are getting away from beef, pork, and chicken. They hadn't seen that in quite some time. Now people can't afford it. So they're trading down, whatever trading down means in the food world. So Tyson is feeling it. So those things are happening right before our very eyes. That is a significant move in a very important stock. And again, the stock market doesn't seem to care, and people will say you're only focused on the negative things. Problem, of course, is it's a very big negative thing that for the first time in a while, you're seeing companies not being able to pass on their costs to the consumer, and that's the first step in this whole puzzle, I think, coming to fruition, Melms. All right. Let's move on to shares of Charles Schwab posting deeper losses in the broader financials today, dropping more than 3%. The stock is down more than 40% in the last three months. But our next guest is bullish on Schwab, saying investors are mistaking a temporary problem for a permanent trend. Harris Associates partner and director of U.S. research Alex Fitch joins us now. Alex manages two Oakmark funds that own Schwab. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you're not the only one on the street who likes Schwab. There's a uh, 
there's a lot of most of the street actually like Schwab got a buy or an overweight rating on, on this one. It trades horribly, though. So what is what's the street thinking about this um, it, it, compared to what investors are thinking? Because it, it seems like investors are painting with the same brush as an SVB, like there's some sort of mark to market problem uh, lurking in Schwab's balance sheet. Yeah, I think we agree it trades horribly. Uh, it's a wonderful business that we think deserves a premium multiple. And uh, on our uh, forecast of mid-cycle earnings, it trades at a high single-digit multiple of its earnings power. I think the big problem is that you do have a little bit of a mark-to-market issue and you've had deposit outflows. And those are commonalities you really don't want to have today. Uh, I think they're very different for Schwab. Um, you know, Schwab is having deposit outflows because customers are moving funds from their bank to money market funds, that's exactly what you'd expect to see in a world with a 5% Fed funds rate. And I think a lot of investors don't appreciate that if First Republic customers move their accounts to JP Morgan or Bank of America, and they've upended that relationship, that account is not coming back. That's very different than what's going on with Schwab customers, where you have a Schwab account, you buy a money market fund in the account, that customer is not gone, that money's not gone, and you've actually been seeing Schwab growing their accounts faster than they were before the banking crisis. So I think there's a different profile to the deposit flows that, that really matters. So the deposits are still stored or housed within the Charles Schwab complex. It's just in a different bucket. But when you say it's a, there's a little mark-to-market problem, can you explain that so we can understand what this, why it's a little problem and not a big problem or a problem can, that can get worse uh, if interest rates continue to rise? Sure. So Schwab has mark-to-market losses, not to the extent of Silicon Valley or First Republic, not even close, but they do have mark-to-market losses. The reason I say it's a little problem and, and not a big problem is you really can't look at just one side of the balance sheet and market. I mean, if you mark-to-market the assets, you also would want to mark-to-market the liabilities in Silicon Valley's case, those turned out to be short duration. Uh, in Charles Schwab's case, we think they're very likely to be very long duration deposits. And so the equity value there is greater than it looks like if you just mark the securities. Um, quick one, though. Um, so they have plenty of cash on the balance sheet. And, and to your point about how you're marketing the assets and liabilities, I mean, the stock, to use Mel's technical term, does trade horribly. And, and it trades <laughs> like um, the company has to raise capital um, you know, and we've seen a lot of instances over the last couple of months where companies have come out and said they need to raise capital. We've seen what happened to their equity here. To me, closing very near a two-year low, I mean, what, what is your sense? Like, does, does this company, would it benefit them to raise capital and kind of put that to bed? Because if it's the sort of franchise that I think we all know it to be, wouldn't that be something that could actually maybe put a bottom into some of, like, we wouldn't be having this segment with you right now if maybe like we felt very comfortable about that capital base. Understood. I do not think they have to raise capital. They have materially above their regulatory minimums in capital today. And the only way that changes uh, is if the rules change around mark to market. And that is certainly on the table, but with a time delay. And one thing I think isn't appreciated about Schwab, when you earn two and a half or three times the return on equity of most of your most of the banks out there, you also fill a capital hole through earnings two and a half to three times faster. And so to the extent that there is some type of look through on this mark to market, I think Schwab's much better off filling the hole organically and has a much better ability to do so than most of the banks that we talk about today. 
It's Karen. Thanks for being on. So when you think about valuing this stock, how do you value the different parts of the business? Where do you think they should trade in a, if, if we get sort of through this crisis and calm is restored? The way we see it, it's a brokerage business that decides to monetize uh, through bank deposits, essentially. And I agree with uh, one of the points made earlier that there is a headwind to the business and to the earnings profile in the next few years because you're losing deposits and you have to use higher cost funding to fill that hole. It's not a permanent headwind to the earnings profile. And eventually, when you get down to that frictional deposit base that is just cash between accounts and deposits grow again, you're going to replace all that high cost funding and you're going to get back to being this bank that has five to six dollars of mid-cycle earnings power. And in our opinion, it's worth an above market multiple of that. And the two funds that you manage, Alex, did you have you increased your allocation to Charles Schwab with the we decline? Had, it was a new position in the Oakmark Select Fund uh, during this quarter, actually. And we increased it in Oakmark Equity and Income. OK, Alex, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Alex Fitch. Guy, your take on Schwab. It's one of those unique properties, without question. I think it's a really important company for market sentiment as well. But it's one of those things where, as the stock goes lower, which, by the way, it has. Since Sarah's interview a couple weeks ago with the CEO, stock went from 45 to 60. It's round-tripped the entire thing. So as the equity goes lower, depositors are saying, wait a second, what's going on here? If depositors flee, the stock goes lower. And then it becomes sort of this self-perpetuating thing. And I'm not trying to be a fear-monger here. I'm just paying attention to what's going on and listen to some of the comments from Warren Buffett over the weekend talking about banks. So there's clearly something happening up under the hood here in Charles Schwab. And you wonder, um, is this stock going to, you know, are they going to be a standalone company a year from now? Or are we going to see a similar fate? You know, do you see a take under? Because I guarantee there are people out there salivating at the thought of being able to own Charles Schwab in the hole. It's just not at this price, I don't think. Well, the options trading today in Schwab was decidedly bearish. Mike Coe has the action. Mike? Yeah, so it was one of the busiest uh, financial stock options that we saw today, one of the top 10, actually. It wasn't extraordinary for its own volume recently, but that's only because the average put volume is about 10 times what it was over the previous 10 years. The most active puts that we saw expiring this week were the 44s. We saw a buyer of 1,000 of those pay about 13 cents, ultimately over 3,200 of them traded. But there were several other short-dated puts that were active as well. Buyers of these options obviously think that there may be further weakness in the days and weeks ahead. All right. For more options action, tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, two gig economy stocks that should be on your radar. And one of our traders is backing it up with the charts. The technicals straight ahead. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Don't look now, but shares of Uber hitting more than 52-week highs today. The stock is up more than 2% or now up nearly 60% for the year. And two other gig economy stocks seem to be coming along for the ride. Um, Dan, you flagged this and you're looking at DoorDash and Airbnb. Yeah, so we talk a lot about the concentration among those top names mm-hmm. in the NASDAQ. And I just think when you look at how Uber traded last week after their results and what Dara had to say about, I think it gave investors increased confidence about this path towards further profitability. And that move was really interesting. New 52-week uh, highs today and a follow-through. I was looking at Airbnb, which also had good results, has been profitable for a long time. This is a company expected to grow, um, you know, earnings 20% plus, revenues 15% 
30% plus over the next couple of years, trades about 36 times this year, about 30 times next. And you say to yourself, okay, this does not fall in that category of like a kind of an earnings or like gap versus adjusted, that sort of thing. Look at that chart right there. It held its 200-day moving average. It's been consolidating over the last year. That $130 level looks kind of interesting to me. If you back it out five years, you say to yourself, there's lots of room up above. Okay, the other one, I don't like this company particularly that much. It's DoorDash. I don't like the unit economics for this one. They're still not profitable, but just on a technical setup. Again, it held its 200-day moving average. This gig thing seems to be coming out. And the only point that I bring these up, these are the sorts of names that would give you increasing confidence that the rally would be broadening out. These are real market cap companies. I mean, Airbnb's got 70 billion plus. This is a $25 billion market cap company. Uber, obviously a big one too. So you want to see it kind of migrating a little bit, some of the enthusiasm to some of these other names. Yeah. Uh, Grasso, you like any of these? Uh, well, um, when you look at the DoorDash chart on this, this is really the, the epitome, the definition of building a base on this one. So it's, it's up a, a decent chunk for the year. But when you look at the chart, it looks like it wants to start stepping up. All the other ones he mentioned definitely have already made their move and will continue that move because I think people are going to go out on the risk curve now. So if you get into this feeling that you think you're safe in those top 10 large cap names, mm-hmm. now you start to migrate and, and dip your toe in these other ones, and these are the ones that he's dipping his toe in. All right, coming up, the results are in, and there's one place investors are putting their money that might surprise you. Everything out of Investopedia's latest sentiment survey when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Investor fears have spiked amid high inflation, recession concerns, and bank failures. One in three investors now expect markets to drop 10% in the next three months, according to Investopedia's latest investor sentiment survey. For more, let's welcome back Fast Money friend and Investopedia and editor-in-chief, Caleb Silver. Caleb, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Um, it feels like since the last time we talked, which is about a month ago, right after the bank failure started, there's a real change in sentiment amongst yeah, investors. Absolutely. They're playing a lot more defense. We know defense wins championships, but you got to score too. There's been a little rally going on. I know it's been choppy lately, but the headlines are really scaring investors, whether it's banks, whether it's inflation, whether it's the debt ceiling. All these things are putting investors back on their heels, and they're not that committed right now. 56% say they're worried about it. You mentioned one in three expect the market to fall 10% in the next three months. 37% are investing less lately. That's more than a third. These are active investors, as you know, at Investopedia, and the fact that they don't want to play right now is interesting. Yeah, um, a lot of them have started bank accounts in order to get high-yield savings. I mean, that's where the that's where their head's at right now. Yeah, even though they've lost some trust in financial institutions, given what's happened, they are putting their money in high-yield savings accounts. They're looking for money market funds, money market accounts, and CDs, which were popular when we spoke about six weeks ago. Super popular again today. One of the top searches always on Investopedia. What are the best CD rates right now? Huh. And, and I love the question, where would you put an extra $10,000 right now? Because it traditionally it's been like Apple, Microsoft, you know, like the big ones, but not this time. This time it's CD. Yeah, CD is actually equaling individual stocks and the big stocks for the first time since we ever ran this survey. They want that guaranteed yield right now. Stocks feel a little slippery. Stocks feel a little bit scary. There's a lot of headline risk, as we mentioned. So they've been putting their money in the bank and in CDs. How long have you been doing this survey at Investopedia? Just right around when the pandemic broke. So I guess three years ago, we started surveying investors because that's when the fear factor started rising to the extreme. So we do this every eight weeks. And we've been watching this wax and wane of this uh, either fear or this greed, depending on what's going on right now, really feels like they're back on their heels playing defense. Can you give us context in terms of, you know, how 
I don't want to say panicked, but how cautious investors are compared to, to past periods. Yeah, well, if you go all the way back to March, April, and May of 2020, extremely worried back then. But right now, they're just cautious but also not active. There can, you can be cautious and want to do something about it, and that's kind of where they were two months, four months ago. Right now, they're cautious and not really willing to do a whole lot with their portfolios. Caleb, the market always climbs a wall of worry. We've all heard that saying. Is this something where, is there a lag effect between the worry, in your opinion, obviously it's a three-year control group here, but in your opinion, do are we going to see the worry up front here, is that a lagging effect? Do you have any opinion on that whatsoever? Yeah, yeah, I do think it's one of those lagging effects. And I think once, if we get a rally, you think a lot of these individual investors want to play. They are looking for a reason to believe, to quote uh, the boss. So they want to put money to work. They just haven't had the opportunity. And now there are real alternatives. We went from Tina to Tara. They're putting their money where they think it's safe, even in the bank, even though they've lost that trust in a lot of banking institutions. Yeah, Dan, what do you make of this not doing anything? I mean, I think that's fascinating these active investors are not doing it. I, I love the sentiment stuff because I, yeah. I do think that the active nature of the people that are going to engage in that, I mean, what? give us a sense, like, over the last couple of years, we talk about some of these bubbles. I mean, does it get as granular as, like, do you remember a year and a half ago in 2021 where people talking about that extra 10 grand would go into NFTs or crypto and stuff <laughs> like that? Is it? Does it get like that? Absolutely. And you'd think they might want to put a little bit of money in crypto given yeah. the rally right now. So, yes, these are individual investors, individual investors who track manias. They track manias is like Bitcoin, like cryptocurrencies, like cannabis stocks, when those were hot, like meme stocks. But right now, if you look at the list of the top 10 stocks, which we do all the time, they're the biggest 10 stocks in the market, plus a little Intel, which I thought was interesting this time around as well, Mm. given the results. But still, playing it safe with the home cooking and now putting money in a safe place, the bank. Caleb, good to see you. Thank you. Caleb Silver, Investopedia. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trades guy. El Dorado Gold. Steve. Capri. Karen. One month treasuries, they're priced for panic. Calm down. Dan. I'm buying PayPal at 70 tomorrow. All right, thanks for watching Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.